You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. It's good to see all of you. For those of you who are watching online, thank you for tuning in with us this morning. For those of you who are guests with us this morning, I want to say welcome to you. Glad that you are here with us. And for those of you uh, who were guests last week for the first time and returned after an entire sermon on the topic of suffering, welcome back, you gluttons for punishment. Good to have you back in the house. We're continuing in our series we have titled Coffee Cup Faith, where we're going to be looking at some of the more popular Bible verses uh, that you often find on the side of a coffee cup at your local Christian bookstore. Uh, Our task here throughout this entire series uh, this morning included is to determine the actual meaning of some of these verses when they are found within their full context in the Scripture. Uh, This morning, our passage is certainly no exception. As recent as a few years ago, LifeWay Research did a study and found that roughly four out of ten churches, that's almost half, four out of ten, espouse a theological view that we refer to as the prosperity gospel, the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, in short, assumes that the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross purchased not only forgiveness of sin and eternal life for all believers, but also prosperity and favor with regard to one's health, one's finances, and one's overall success in life. In other words, the idea that underlies the prosperity gospel is that God wants you as a Christian to enjoy good health, to give you all the promotions at work, uh, by making all of your plans come to pass, and to fulfill all of your dreams. There is a very well-known, prominent church today that draws thousands upon thousands of people to it that has on their statement of faith on their website a portion that says God's will for provision, and it states this. This is exactly word for word. It says, it is the Father's will, the Father's will for believers to become whole, healthy, and successful in all areas of life. And under it, there are provisions Areas of provisions where this applies, and those areas are spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, and financial, of course. They say this is God's will. God's will for you is to be successful and to have provision in every area of your life. And it's weird, if you take that phrase and you copy it from that website and you put it in a Google search What you find is actually there are many churches who have this exact phrase in their doctrine, their statement of faith, what we believe. Now, I hope this will not come as a surprise to you. Maybe it will. Uh, We can talk afterwards. But this is bad theology. Uh, I said this last week. One of the major things that we talked about last week in, in our message on Jeremiah 29 was that God never promises to deliver you out of your suffering, but he does promise to deliver you through your suffering. So understand that the atonement of Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with your physical health. If that were the case, then the apostles had really, really terrible faith because none of them survived. They were all physically harmed and all of them died, save John, who ended up on a rock for the rest of his life after they tried to boil him alive, and he just was frustratingly stubborn and survived, and uh, went on to write, uh, write several of his letters, one of which was the revelation of Jesus. Uh, they all suffered, though. They all, they, so they demonstrate something about the uh, lack of efficacy, if this is true, in the atonement. Now, of course, we don't believe this at City on a Hill, but it still remains four out of ten roughly churches teach this. Now, it is not uncommon when you are developing a doctrine to want to support it biblically, right, by putting a bunch of verses in brackets next to whatever it is that you're saying. We do this on our website. Uh, We have a confession of faith that we hold to. We believe that it's biblical, and we give you some addresses to prove it. But I like to always tell you that not to just look at the verses that are cited, but look at the context of the whole thing to make sure that these verses really do support what it is that we are claiming the Bible says. One of the regularly cited verses, verses that supports this kind of uh, ideology is uh, also happens to be our coffee cup verse this morning. And so we're going to do the big reveal, find out what it is that we're studying this morning. Are we ready? 
All right, so this morning, our uh, verse is Psalm 20, verse 4, which says, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. I want to remind you, in case you uh, don't take my word for it, there is actual coffee in this. And I will be drinking it some this morning as we talk through this. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. It sounds nice. God, I mean, here it is. We just proved it in the Bible. God wants you to be successful. He wants to grant all of your heart's desire, and he wants to fulfill all of your plans. It, Psalm 20, verse 4 says that. Is that really what this means? Is that, is that really what this means? Now, let me, let's ask some qualifying questions before we get to the text. Does God really grant the desires of our heart? In general, this may surprise you, although it's not what this passage is about, the short answer is yes. He often does grant us uh, the desires of our hearts, just not in the way that you might think. Uh, the Bible tells us that as Christians, God's goal, his purpose for us is to draw us into conformity into the image of his son, Jesus, that we are to become more like Christ. And when that happens, when we begin walking according to his will and not my own will, then my desires begin to conform to his desires. And when that happens, he begins to grant the desires of my heart because they're his desires. This is the goal of sanctification. He desires us to walk in line with him. So for example, uh, Psalm 37 verse 4, it says, delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your hearts. This is a premise and a promise, an if and then statement. If you delight in the Lord, your desires then will begin to align with his desires. That is the premise of this statement. What is the promise? When that happens, he will grant those desires. Jesus echoes this very thing, John 15, uh, verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, premise and a promise. By the way, I love that in the English, Jesus is like a poet. It rhymes, right? It's kind of a little jingle. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's just kind of like a, <laughs> I don't know. I've always loved it. It's always been easy for me to memorize that one. Premise and a promise. If you remain in Christ... If his words remain in you, his commandments remain in you, meaning that you are obedient to them, then the promise is, if that happens, when you ask, it will be done. Why? Because again, you're asking according to his word abiding in you and you abiding in him. If you are abiding in him, his word remains in you, then you're not going to be asking for foolish worldly things. Now with that said, what if you're not walking according to the will of God? What if you're not walking in obedience to God's commandments? The Bible says, again, this may surprise you, God still might give you the desires of your heart. He, he may do it, but not as an act of blessing, as an act of discipline. So God says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, he says, the heart, this is a great, just if you want a primer on what the heart is like in the Bible, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, desperately wicked, is some, the way some of the other uh, translations translate this. So the heart is sick, it's broken, it's wicked, it's bent towards not God's desires and God's plans. So when I am not in submission then to the lordship of Jesus, the desires of my heart, if I follow them out and they come to pass, are actually very bad news for me. But then look at what verse 10 says. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. Sometimes the heart is sick and desperately wicked, and God still grants the desires of the heart, not as a blessing, but as a discipline in my life. So that's what the Bible says in general about the heart and my desires. What about my plans? What does God say about our plans? I, I wonder what prosperity preachers think of passages like Psalm 3310, where it says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Sometimes it is the will of God to frustrate your plans. And again, this might be for your benefit and for your blessing because your plans are dumb and they're going to lead to brokenness. And it might be that it's just not God's timing yet. We're not really sure, but it does happen sometimes. So, so he does bring, understand, prosperity, but he also brings the opposite of prosperity. I love this one, Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. You know, in, instead of the prosperity gospel, I, I wonder if we might start calling it the prosperity and disaster gospel. 
you know, uh, based on this passage. Like, uh, maybe that would get me on TV. Maybe that's the, the key. I'll be America's first prosperity and disaster gospel preacher. <laughs> if all of this is true, and, and I believe it is, I believe this is the message of the Bible, then, then what does Psalm 20 verse 4 really mean? What, what is going on here? Uh, this passage, this psalm, is really about facing a crisis. David, in this passage, is about to go to war. And though God has showed up numerous times for him in various different events throughout his life, war was still uh, an incredibly terrifying prospect. God was sending David against a nation that had more advanced military technology. They had war horses. They had chariots. And God was sending David with significantly uh, a smaller army. And they were not to go on horse. They were not to go uh, on chariot. They were to go on foot. And there was a reason for this. It looked like a lopsided battle. The reason was God wanted to make sure that all of the nations know who is responsible for Israel's victory. It's not their their strength. It's not their technology. It wasn't their strategic battle plans. It was because Yahweh went before them. On paper, if you were, you know, uh, what is the, uh, the uh, like, was it DraftKings or the betting app that, you know, I don't bet because I read my Bible and pray, but, uh, but if you were to <laughs> If you were to bet, you know, in the ancient world on who wins this fight, 10 out of 10 times on paper, David loses. It's a terrible, terrible odds. So, so David is, is required in this, understand, to live by faith, to walk by faith. One of the things that, that it, it's, it's one thing to say that I believe in God, I love God, amen, I want to be obedient to God. We, we all desire that, I hope. Uh, I want to follow God and do what God says in my life. That's one thing to say that. It's an entirely different thing to go toe-to-toe with an enemy nation, with an army that outnumbers your army three to one, that has far better military weaponry, and that by all measurable means will demolish you before lunchtime, all because God said to do it. That requires faith. That is an act of tremendous taking God at his word. And so Psalm 20 reflects the prayers of God's people for David as he enters into this crisis and for David's meditation on who God is before he goes to battle. Before David were were to go, this is how it worked historically, before David was to go to battle, he and his men would come to the tabernacle. Later kings would do this as well in the temple. They would go into the sanctuary, they would make offerings as was custom in the Old Testament, burnt offerings, meal offerings, and while the burnt offering was on the altar of God and the smoke began to rise up as a fragrant offering to him, David would stand in the corner of the altar and he would begin to pray for God to prepare him for the war that he was facing. While that was happening, get the image in your mind, while that was happening, the people of God in Israel would stand outside in the courtyard and they would collectively pray for their king and the army as they went into battle per God's instructions for God to protect and provide and a whole host of other things. And after they were done praying, so they're praying, he's praying, the altar is, uh, is working, the, the burnt offering is on fire, the smoke is rising, After they're done praying, the king would sit for a moment in silence at the altar and he would recall all of the moments of God's faithfulness in his life and past experiences, both in his life and in the stories that he had heard in generations prior. And that reminder of God's faithfulness would give him confidence. He would think to himself, God is a God who shows up. God is a God who keeps his word. He is a God who never fails. He is a God who always brings that which he promises to pass. And so the prayers of the people of God on behalf of David, coupled with David's meditation and remembering God's faithfulness in times past, would give the king the confidence that he needed to trust in the Lord in the midst of looming, disastrous, and totally lopsided war. So this psalm, it reflects the prayers of God's people for their king, and it reflects the king's meditation on the character and nature of who he really is. Now, with that in mind, knowing the the historical practices that the Old Testament and Jewish history unfolds for us, with that in mind, let's read Psalm 20 now and let the text speak for itself, but knowing what the backstory is, because this makes a lot more sense when you understand what's going on here. Here it is, Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. 
May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. Now it switches here after the first five verses. This is the prayers of the people. In verses six through eight, it moves to David's meditation. Here it is. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The passage reads a little differently in its context, doesn't it? God's not promising anything about Ferraris here. There's no mansions in the cards. There's no presidential suite that we want so badly in our flesh. Verse 4, in fact, this is interesting, is not a promise at all. Verse 4 is not a promise. It's a prayer. It's a prayer of the people of God praying on behalf of their king in the context of war. Grant David's desires. What would that have been in the context of war? To not die. (laughs) To, To win. To be victorious. To honor God. I mean, there's several aspects of it. It has nothing to do with material blessing, though. Now, how does this apply to us? What are the takeaways for us? We're certainly not a nation state like Israel. We're not a theocratic monarchy. We don't don't even live by the old covenant. Uh, And and so what are the takeaways? When we read this today in 2022 at City on a Hill, how do we think about Psalm 20? I I like to think of, of Psalm 20 as a helpful guide when someone enters into a crisis in their life. In fact, I've titled the message this morning, In the Event of a Crisis. I believe that we find incredibly helpful instruction in this psalm for us as we enter into seasons of crisis in our life. Many of you right now are facing this. You are in the middle of a crisis right now, whether that is a relational conflict that you face or marital conflict or some decision that you know you need to make in your life, but it's a really tough decision and you're really hesitant to do it because you know as soon as you do, it's going to create a lot of fallout in your life and, and stuff that you're going to have to deal with uh, in, in uh, conjunction with it. And, and, and so uh, you stand right now, many of you, in the face of some kind of crisis and you need to know as Christ followers, how do I weather this? How do I navigate this? How do I walk through this? What, are, what should I be doing in the middle of it? And I believe that if we follow the steps of Psalm 20, there's some really helpful things in here when disaster shows up on your doorstep. And so I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about this and thinking about this and, and navigating through the wisdom of God in the Old Testament Psalm 20. Uh, let's begin with the first five verses here. We'll say this, in the event of a crisis, number one, we mobilize the community to pray. In the event of a crisis, you mobilize the community to pray. The beauty of the first five verses is that it's a prayer for someone else moving into crisis. People knew that the king was going to war. War was a customary part of the ancient world. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. This was their custom. And, and how weak does this make us look as a nation, by the way, reading this? In the spring of that year, I got up and cleaned my garage. Blew off the leaves off the front porch. David was like, we went and murdered our enemies. <laughs> Just a very different time to live, I guess. David knew that war was coming, but beyond that, his people knew that war was coming. And they took that information and they went to collectively, as a group, pray on his behalf. Aware of the crisis that they faced, they responded through prayer. Now, if you look at the first five verses, you'll notice in your English translations, most of them have the word may seven times within the first five verses, one of them being on our coffee cup verse this morning. Uh, Let me walk through them. Verse one, may the Lord answer you. Verse one, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Verse two, may he send you help from the sanctuary. Verse three, may he remember all of your offerings. Verse four, may he grant you your heart's desires. Verse five, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Verse five, may the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. Seven times in the first five verses we see this. It is a very, very intentional prayer for David. And beyond that, notice that it is a very specific prayer. It wasn't a generalized prayer. 
It wasn't like a, hey, praying for you, lifting you up, <laughs> positive vibes. <laughs> Please stop that. That is just, don't, we, the vibes thing is just, it kills me. It, it's, it's not real. They're not real. There's no vibes. Um, beyond that, I think that when we generalize prayer, it, we miss a real tremendous opportunity. A tremendous opportunity to really minister to one another. If you are praying for someone that you know is in the middle of or entering into a crisis, don't tell them you're praying for them. Show them you're praying for them by praying for them, over them. Like, hey, I, you, you were telling me about how you're struggling. I've been thinking about it. Would you mind if I prayed for you right now? Would you mind if I just put my hands on you and prayed for you just for a moment? I, I experienced this not once but twice this week. I was facing some difficulty earlier this week, and I had expressed it to a few groups of people in my life, and, and they did not tell me that they were going to pray for me. They said, hey, let me pray for you right now. And they, it, was, it was not like a long, you know, it had, doesn't have to be a long, ornate prayer. It's just a basic, let me minister to you by praying for you right now. And it blessed me. It blessed me tremendously. Psalm 20 is a specific and intentional prayer. And notice the ways in which they pray. There's, there's four. They pray for prayers for protection. Verse one, it says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So they're praying for the protection for the king. Now, I wanna be very careful about this uh, so as not to insinuate to you that God will always protect you physically. He won't. You need to know that. You need to be aware of that. Sometimes, this may be controversial for you, you need to hear it. It is not God's will to protect you physically, sometimes. I would say oftentimes. I would say more often than not. It is not God's will to protect you from physical harm. Uh, and there is a biblical case to be made. You know how I know that? Because I've read the Gospels, and I know what happened to Jesus. He suffered physically on the cross according to God's will. I've read the book of the Acts of the Apostles. I know what happened to the apostles, how they suffered and were beaten and were imprisoned and faced physical harm over and over and over again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we thought we had received the sentence of death. Things were so bad for us serving the Lord that we thought we were being given the sentence of death. You know why? So that we would grow in our dependence upon him. Stephen in the book of Acts, first recorded Christian martyr, dies, physically suffers and dies for his faith. God does not always protect you physically. I did a lexical study this week, as many ways as I could do it, um, and there is not a passage that I could find, and I'm pretty good at doing searches, um, there's not a single passage where we are told to pray for physical protection for one another. There's not a time where it's even talked about asking God to protect us from physical harm. It's, it's, the Bible is silent about this. Do you know what it's not silent about? Praying for protection from the schemes of the evil one. The New Testament's very clear about this. It has a lot to say about prayers for protection against Satan, our enemy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Jesus praying the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 15, he says, but I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. James chapter four, verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ephesians chapter six unfolds this really epic armor of God that Christians are to put on as they prepare for the spiritual war that is a reality for them. In uh, Ephesians chapter six, verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God, why? That you may look really awesome, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 16, he goes on to say, the shield of faith which, which, with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, what we're talking about, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, watch what it's going to do, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, the very places that the enemy seeks to attack you in. 
We are to pray when someone is entering into a crisis that Christ, that the the love of Christ, that the, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would guard our minds from the enemy. You gotta hear this. When you enter into a crisis, you need to know this. You are vulnerable. You are vulnerable. You're not thinking clearly. You're not making good decisions. You're not thinking rationally. You're certainly, almost certainly, not thinking biblically. And so when you enter into a crisis, others need to know about that so that they can pray on your behalf for protection against the schemes of the evil one. Because otherwise, he's going to come in and he's going to seize that opportunity and he will do things that will make you doubt and make you worry and make you afraid and make you fearful and make you anxious. And so when you face that crisis, understand you need prayer. You need a community of people around you to pray that God will fulfill the promises of the New Testament to guard you, to protect you, not from physical harm, but from the schemes of Satan himself, the evil one. You gotta do this. I'm saying this on a morning this morning where 30 minutes before service starts, my wife, who was supposed to sing this morning, completely lost consciousness and fell and hit her head and shoulder somewhere around here and had an ambulance come out and we thought we were going to the hospital and it was a whole thing. And I gotta get up here and tell you, don't pray for physical harm, protection from physical harm. I believe that. I believe that fully. God preserved her for now. But you know what I immediately began praying for? Protection against the enemy. Protection against the enemy. God wants our people to pray on one another's behalf, and the enemy wants nothing more than to stop that. We are a people of prayer. Prayers for protection spiritually. Number two, prayers for provision. Notice this, verse two. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Two real words of importance here, help and support. Both are important to this verse. Both words convey the idea of a kind of help that only God is capable of giving. In fact, the the word help here in the Hebrew, it's in the genitive. Uh, It could be literally translated your help. God's help. And, and, and not just a generalized, again, help, help that comes specifically from, notice it says the sanctuary and from Zion. In other words, help that comes from a place where God dwells. So an application for this, praying something like this for someone who enters into a crisis is to pray this way, Lord, provide for this person with precisely what they need in a way that only you are able to provide. It's a prayer that, re- that reflects a deep dependence on who God is and what he is able to do. It's a recognition that only God can deliver what is needed. No one, nothing else can. Only God, only from his dwelling place can we receive what we need right now in this crisis. Lord, would you give that to this person? Prayers for protection, prayers for uh, uh, provision. Number three, prayers for perseverance. Look at verse three. It says, may he remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. David would have made offerings, as I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, They're recognizing that in their prayer. They're saying, God, the, the, the offerings that David made before he left for battle, would you remember those offerings as he moves into war, and would you kindly look upon him as a result of those offerings and and persevere him? Now, again, we don't make burnt offerings or meal offerings um, in this covenant, in this side of the cross, but we do still make an offering as Christians. Did you know that? And no, this is not a financial part of the the message. I'm not going to do that. Not that kind of offering. We make offerings of spiritual significance. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what is going on here? Paul is saying, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done on our behalf in Christ on the cross, it is fitting, it is entirely completely acceptable that we should submit our entire lives, every aspect of our life under his lordship. My desires, my wants, my skills, my talents, the gifting he has given me, my time, my resources, everything is to be submitted under his lordship. Now again, there is an application here that I think is very powerful. One of the ways I think we can reflect this kind of prayer for someone who is moving into a season of crisis is simply praying that that person would continue to honor Christ with their entire life. 
by praying something like, Lord, my prayer for this person is that as they navigate through this very real and present crisis, that they would continue to honor you with every aspect of their life. Things are going to get difficult. Obedience is going to be challenging. And so my prayer is that as they move through this time of crisis, they would not lose sight of the mission that you have put them on and their love for you and their obedience to you and that would continue to serve you with every faculty of their being, especially when it is hard. That's a prayer of perseverance for them. Don't lose sight of it. Let them continue steadfast in their faith, God, even, especially even when it is hard. So we pray for our friends, brothers, and sisters in the Lord who, who move into conflict or, or difficult seasons of life by praying prayers for protection, not of, uh, against physical harm, but against the schemes of the devil. We pray for provision in a way that only God is able to provide. We, we pray for perseverance, that they would continue to obey God with every aspect of their life. And last, we pray for pro- uh, prayers for progress, Verse 4 says, may he grant you, here it is, your heart's desires and fulfill all of your plans. David's desire here was not material. It was victory in war. It's that this thing would be not drug out, but that we would get out there, that we would get through it, and we'd come back home. And so, again, I think a good application for this is, is to pray, Lord, bring some resolution to this. Don't let this. Don't let this crisis drag out any longer than is necessary. And Lord, prevent this person from making decisions that would make this drag out longer than necessary. We need that prayer too. I want to ask you a question as we're thinking about this, and I I want you to think about it very seriously. I want you to really seriously consider this question. How many of you are going through a crisis right now that no one in this church knows about? And if so, why? Why are you insisting on doing this alone. It's, it's not a good idea. It's not going to pan out for you. And beyond that, you have a group of people here who want to practically love you by praying with you through that thing and giving you real tangible support. I want you to commit right now. I, seriously, I want you to, to make the decision in your heart right now. Commit to me right now, if nothing else, that when this service is over with, and you walk out into that foyer, that you find someone with some semblance of spiritual maturity, and you share the specific details. You don't have to go into like super depth, but give some details to what you're working on or what, what you're working through, what crisis you face, and ask them to pray for you. And hear me when I say this, all the rest of you. If you get asked, don't wait. Don't positive vibes, right? Pray for them right there. Put your hand on their shoulder and pray for them. Pray for protection against the evil one. Pray for God's provision, that they they would be provided for in a way that only God is able to provide. Pray for continual perseverance in their faith in Christ and pray for resolution that this crisis would end as soon as humanly or supernaturally possible. You don't need to know how to, to pray extravagantly. You don't know how to pray ornately. Some of you are like, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, you know how to talk. And if you don't know how to talk, my apologies. You, I mean, most of you know how to speak. I know that because I've spoken to most of you. That's all prayer is. You're just speaking to God. You're just talking to God. You're just going on behalf of that person to God and saying, hey, Father, you, uh, I want to pray on behalf of my brother or sister here. That you, you need to know about what's going on. I mean, I know you know, but, you know, I need to tell you anyways because that's what Pastor Derek said. <laughs> In the event of a crisis mobilize the community of faith to pray for you. It is so valuable. We say all the time, when life happens to you, who's going to care about it? No one will if they don't know about it. So commit right now after service to go and find someone and share and say, I need prayer. Would you do this for me in this way? It's so important. Second thing, and then we will wrap up here. We mobilize the community of faith. Secondly, when you enter into a crisis, in the event of a crisis, you meditate on the commitment of Christ. Look at verse 6, the first three words, now I know. Those are important words in this verse. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He doesn't say, now I hope that the Lord saves his anointed. It's not an expression of hope. It's an expression of experience. David is saying, I know who God is. 
I know he will save me because he has before. He remembered Goliath the Philistine. He remembered that crisis that he entered into. He remembered the kind of protection that God gave him and the fact that it didn't last any longer than it needed to, right? One shot, pow, Goliath down, crisis over. Yahweh wins. No way that little shepherd boy did it. Obviously God, right? He remembered these things. He remembered God's faithfulness in his life. This is similar to what Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, he says, that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Both David and Paul understood something about the nature and character of God, that God is faithful that he has shown up before, that he will show up again. And David goes on in in Psalm 20, verse 7. He says, some, meaning those other nations, trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh, our God. The word trust here in the Hebrew language, it's a word that means something like to ponder, to think on, to remember. Uh, You could translate this as to dwell upon. The idea here is so practical, it's so difficult, but it's so practical and good if you will put it into practice. The idea here is that when crisis strikes in your life, you're faced with it, and that chain reaction of things starts to happen, you know what I mean, where, where crisis begins and you immediately begin to think of all the bad things that's probably going to happen as a result of this, despite the fact that none of them have happened yet. The idea here is that we don't dwell on the crisis when the crisis strikes, but we dwell on the character of Christ. That when, when crisis happens, we take our minds and we begin to actively dwell on not what's happening, but on who God is. Now, here's the rub. In order to dwell upon who God is, we need to know who God is, right? And so this requires studying your Bible, studying reading, being a part of a community of study is actually very helpful. Uh, Statistically speaking, you learn more in those communities. Our Life Bible Study Ministries here, 9 and 1030, are fantastic. We're we're learning right now uh, a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. They're growing. They're great groups. Would you consider joining one? 9 and 1030. Just pick one, come to the other service. That's why we have two services here. When crisis strikes, it's easy to dwell on what is happening right in front of me. That's what fear does to me. I begin to think of everything that could potentially go bad. I think of all that I might lose. And Psalm 20 reminds me that instead of dwelling on that, I need to dwell on the commitment of Christ to us. That's key as well. Not my commitment to Jesus, but Jesus' commitment to me. Did you know this, Christian? If you are a believer, if you are born again in the Lord, that Jesus is committed to you forever. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The word never in the Greek, really interesting. It means never. (laughs) Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, one of my favorite passages, beautiful treatises of, of the reality of God's love for us. Paul says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us For I am sure, there it is again, convinced, I know that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and just in case Paul forgot something, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separates the love of God in Christ Jesus from you. Christ is committed to you even in those moments where you are not committed to him. And it has been true since the beginning, right? God demonstrates his love, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, in that while we were still actively sinners, Christ died for us. He is committed to you. In those moments of crisis, it's so easy to fall prey, to, to dwell on all that could possibly go wrong. And rather than doing that, Psalm 20 reminds us, no, we dwell on all that is right which is Christ. Some of you need to hear this right now. Some of you are entering into a crisis right now. You don't even know it yet. Some of you are in the middle of a crisis, and you need to know beyond all things 
that the Lord Jesus, if you are his, if you have been born again, if you have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, if you believe the gospel, that you belong to him and that nothing can separate you from him. He has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. There is nothing that separates you from that reality. Meditate on it. Think deeply about it. We mobilize and we meditate. You know, uh, recently, a few weeks ago, I, I, love, I have three little girls. I love to do spontaneous things with them, uh, just daddy-daughter time. And uh, one of the things is not actually so spontaneous anymore just because we seem to do this a lot. I love to take them to either uh, Hurricane Harbor or Six Flags. Summertime, try to do more Hurricane Harbor just because it's a seasonal place. And so a couple weeks ago, we went uh, to Hurricane Harbor, one of the last days of the season. And... Uh, my youngest daughter, Lydia, she's six, uh, for as brash and bold as she is, um, she's just a little chicken, you know? She won't ride anything. She's terrified. She's all bark and no bite. And she's a lot of bark. But she will not ride rides. And she turns six, and, and, I, and I never pressure her to. I, I've always led by the philosophy that if you don't want to ride the ride, I'm not going to make you. I'm not going to, like, scar you for life because I made you do this really terrifying thing. And, but it's, it's hard because the other two girls, uh, you know, Tori has been riding roller coasters since she was, like, a toddler. I mean, she just, she is fearless in everything. Cam, being the older sister, couldn't feel embarrassed that her younger sister was doing things she wouldn't do. So she kind of got, like, peer pressured into it a lot of the times, which I'm fine with. The blame falls on Tori, not me. Um, but Lydia, Lydia is, is just scared to death and she turns six and she just made this decision all of a sudden, like, I'm going to start riding rides. So we went to Hurricane Harbor and she, she wanted to ride the slide and I was like, okay, you know, I didn't think there was any chance. And lo and behold, here she comes down the slide and I went, whoa, all right. And so then she did another ride and then she did another ride and then she did another ride and we got over to the big cone ride. I don't know what it's called, but it's really big. One of the biggest rides they have and uh, Cam and Tori wanted to do it with me and, and it's potentially seats four, but you can ride with three. We rode three because Lydia did not want to do that one. She wanted to do, though, so as not to look like a, a chicken, uh, the other ride next to it, which is equally as big. And I think maybe her thought was, I'm just psych psychologizing a little bit here, I think maybe her thought was that, well, uh, I know dad's going to ride this other one with Cam and Tori, and so maybe if I say I want to do that one, I'll be like the odd man out, and it'll be like, sorry, maybe next time, and I won't have to do it. Still look brave, but not this day. Dad's going to do both. So we ride the first one, we come over to the second one, and uh, Lydia is still insistent, I, I want to do this. And I went, okay. And so we get the inner tube, and we begin to walk up the stairs, and you know, at, six, at Hurricane Harbor, it's like a, a flight of steps, and there's a platform, and there's a flight of steps, and there's a platform, and, and with each platform, you're a little higher off the ground, and with each platform, Lydia would kind of go up to the rails and look down and just question every decision she's ever made, right? <laughs> you know, just like, what am I doing? And, and you could almost see like instinctually like, oh, I don't know that I want to do this, and, and she would turn around and look at me, and then she'd kind of smile and keep going up the next flight. So we get to the... Uh, we get to the top. She had not evaluated how high the ride was. Honestly, Dad had not evaluated how high the ride was. Uh, I was thinking to myself, I, I hope this is a good idea. I don't know. And so I get in the tube, and it was one where uh, I sat down, and my legs went this way, and then Lydia's butt was kind of like near my feet and her feet. So we're kind of facing each other side by side. And I sat down in there, and Lydia was like, nope, not riding that. And I was like, hey, baby, it's okay. You really don't have to, but I'm right here. It's going to be fine. No, I don't want to do that. And then something happened. Everyone in line around her began cheering her on. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, yeah, you can do it. You're, you're brave. You're like the littlest girl up here. You're, you're going to do fine. And she was kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, all right. And, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, yeah, baby, I'm right here. Daddy's got you. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. And, and she sits down, and I'm not even kidding you. The moment her butt hit the thing. The ride operator knew what was going on. He was like, <laughs> right? So off we go. And we go down this first little run right before the big drop. And I can see on her face, she is like, what have I done? You know, she is gripping my hand as tight as she can. And I'm going the whole time, baby, it's okay. I'm going backwards down the hill. I'm thinking you got it way better than I do. So we come flying down this hill, and, it, and it's one of those hills where you go back up the next side, and we get to the very peak of, of the, the, the ride, and I could see in her face her, her change from fear to, like, I did this, <laughs> you know, just total excitement. 
And I was holding on to her the whole way, and I was going, baby, you did it. It's amazing. You, you got this. This is awesome. And we got off, and she was so excited. She wanted to tell her sisters, and she was telling other people in line, hey, I just did that, you know. And, and I thought about that this week, that what a beautiful picture of Psalm 20. You know, it, a slide like that may not be a crisis to, to us. It, for some of you, it may be. But to a six-year-old, it certainly is. And, and she went up there, and, and she was in the middle of this sort of crisis moment, and, and she had people around her mobilized, cheering her on in the background. She could hear their voices as they were cheering her on. And she had a daddy holding her hand saying, baby, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. You're going to be fine. I've got you. And she did it. And she came down on the other side of that, having learned something about the trust that she can have with her dad and something about the power of people encouraging her when she's scared. There's something, I think, intrinsically wired up in us as humans that need this kind of thing. When we enter into seasons of uncertainty and crisis, we need people saying, I'm with you and I'm gonna pray alongside you, and we have a good and gracious Father who is never going to leave you, and I'm going to go to him on your behalf, and I'm going to ask him to do the things that he has promised to do for us as his children. It may not work. Some of the things that in your crisis may break. They may totally dissolve. You may lose a lot. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it for you. But you know what you will not lose? You will not lose the deep and abiding love that the Father has for you and the commitment of the community of faith around you as you Deal with it. You will come out thinking how deep the Father's love for me. That though I run, though I don't always commit, he is ever more committed to me. And that gives me the confidence for the next crisis that I have whenever that may be. I'm going to invite the worship team out here in a moment to lead us one last time in that song, how deep the Father's love for us. And I, and I want you, if you are in the middle of a crisis right now, I want you to, to think about that as I'm praying, and then I want you to put it aside, and I want you for the next at least few moments to just focus your mind on the commitment that the Lord has to you, not because of anything that you have done, but because of what he has done on your behalf. And hopefully that will give you some confidence moving forward. And if you have not told anyone in here about that, I want you to leave this room and go out there and do it. Mobilize the community and meditate on his faithfulness. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your kindness to us that though we struggle and suffer and enter into times of crisis, that according to your word, there is a plan before us that gives us confidence as we move through it, to mobilize your people to pray, a prayer of protection against the enemy, a prayer for provision in a way that only you are able to provide, a, a, a prayer of perseverance that we would continue to honor Jesus in those moments of crisis, and a, and a, a prayer of progress that, that it would end as soon as possible. And that as we are praying for one another, would we also meditate on who you are, your kindness to us, your faithfulness to us, that we can be confident in who you are and what you will continue to do on our behalf. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand as we respond to remember his love this morning. Sing this with me. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He would give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of Syria the Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen Bring many sons to glory
hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until he was a David says, I will not boast in chariots or horses, for I know, for this I know with all my heart. The Father's love is deep and abiding. It is never failing. It is never ending. And that when I am not committed, Jesus is ever more committed to me. Take heart in that, know that, and if you would, reach out and share the crisis you face after this, that you would not walk it alone, but that you would be reminded of God's community love he has for you through this people and for his eternal love for you in Christ. Thank you for being a church that loves Jesus and loves one another. God bless you. We'll see you next time.